Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm delighted to welcome to this podcast Dr. Peter O'Sullivan. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much. Peter is professor in the School of Physiotherapy at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, and also a practicing clinician in the Perth area. Today, he and I are going to talk about a perspective article that he and his colleagues have published in PTJ entitled Cognitive Functional Therapy, an Integrated Behavioral Approach for the Targeted Management of Disabling Low Back Pain. I'll do a brief summary, and then we'll get into some questions about the work, Peter, if that's okay. Yeah, sounds good. The authors note that cognitive functional therapy was developed as a flexible integrated behavioral approach to help clinicians individualize the management of disabling low back pain. Their approach evolved from an integration of foundational behavioral psychology and neuroscience within PT practice. It's underpinned by a multidimensional clinical reasoning framework that they talk about uh, in their perspective, and the the focus is on identifying both modifiable and non-modifiable factors associated with an individual's disabling low back pain. Their perspective illustrates with several examples the application of cognitive functional therapy, or CFT, to providing care for individuals with disabling low back pain. So, Professor O'Sullivan, my first question is, in your article, CFT is discussed as an integrated behavioral approach to individualize the management of people with disabling low back pain. Can you briefly describe for our listeners what CFT involves? I suppose one of the things as a PT, having trained in probably what's been a pretty traditional approach where the focus is very much around signs and symptoms, more biomechanics and structure, is uh, within our our research and certainly clinical practice, we realise that a lot of the barriers for recovery for people often involve things like their beliefs and emotional responses to pain and their behaviours. They could be behaviours around movement, movement avoidance, protective behaviours, uh, behaviours in terms of lifestyle. So with that in mind, this model looks at examining a patient from a multidimensional perspective. It first triages people to make sure that we're not treating stuff that um, is serious, uh, like an inflammatory disorder, um, malignancy, fractures, etc. And once that's done, it identifies the key factors within the patient's story that seem to be key drivers of their pain and disability. And then from that perspective in the examination, looks from a behavioural perspective at the things that, you know, very typically for back pain, the things that they hear and their behavioural responses to pain, which often involves protective muscle guarding and increased co-contraction around movements and takes them on a journey essentially to help them reconceptualise their pain away from uh, what is very typically, you know, perceptions around pain equals damage, that movement and activity are dangerous for the back. 
And so the three components within this to reconceptualize the pain, then take people back to the activities they think are dangerous and that they avoid, and to gradually integrate that into their life, so to to recover from reducing their disability. And then the other component is then addressing healthy lifestyle factors within that. So we kind of conceptualize this as an integrated approach that target the drivers of disability for an individual with back pain. That's very helpful. And and I will note to listeners that the authors do a very nice job of describing the various elements uh, in the perspective. Let me go on and talk a bit about the target population. You note in your perspective that the focus is on individuals who have disabling low back pain, but the absence of serious pathology. Yeah. What yeah. proportion of individuals that PTC typically would would meet those criteria for whom this approach would be yeah. relevant? Yeah. So it's actually a large group of people. Your listeners might be familiar with the recent Lancet series that came out um, that highlights that back pain is the largest cause of disability in the world of all health conditions. So it's a really common problem. And When we look at epidemiological studies, we see that up to 30% of people within the population over time can have disabling back pain. That means it's pain that stops them from engaging in physical activity, work activity, uh, functional movement activity. So it's it's a really large group. Um, And we would see like one in three people consulting a a general practice for musculoskeletal disorders, and about half of them are usually back pain. So this is not a small group of people, it's a really big group of people who unfortunately we haven't managed well and that's where we see, we believe, a failure in primary care and that's, you know, PTs in terms of what we're doing has really led these opportunities for dangerous and, and, and often invasive treatments like the opioid crisis and, and, you know, fusion surgery for back pain because I think we haven't addressed the key drivers of uh, disabling pain in, in the primary care setting. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, and, and as you, of course, know, that's one of the reasons why we did the special issue on uh, chronic pain management. Many of the issues that you've already mentioned are touched on by other articles in the special issue. Absolutely, and one of the things that concerns me is sometimes I hear PT say, well, we don't see these people, and I think what that often highlights is that these people often don't hang around PT practice because if you're not identifying these factors early. So these are factors that emerge very early in an acute phase of the disorder. People are highly distressed or fearful or thinking, you know, catastrophic thoughts around their pain. They won't hang around primary care. They rapidly uh, progress into more invasive approaches to management. And, you know, we've just done a study in ED and emergency departments, and a lot of these people are turning up into emergency as well um, and getting prescribed opioids at the first point of contact because they're distressed, and these are people with non-trauma back pain. So, you know, we're, I think what it highlights is that they're drifting through the net very quickly because we're not identifying these people early and managing them effectively. In your article, you talk about three main components that are addressed in uh, CFT, and, and you, you label them, uh, number one, making sense of pain, number two, exposure with control, and number three, yeah. lifestyle change. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about each for listeners? Making sense is a really interesting aspect 
benefits of understanding health behaviour. And there was a, um, a chap called Leventhal who proposed a common, a common sense model of um, illness perception where an individual who has a health complaint, and we'll use the example of, say, back pain, kind of leans on their, their, you know, their historical experience of pain, their contextual factors, social influences, cultural influences, and then tries to make sense of their health problem by saying, you know, what is it? You know, what's the cause? What's the consequences? What's the timeline? Can I control that? And then based on that, they take an action which might be, you know, back pain means there's something damaged, I better protect it and avoid it, I shouldn't go for a walk and I mustn't work. And then that drives emotional responses that could lead to things like fear. So this common sense approach is something that with our research group had looked at and, and it's interesting that it's emerging as these kind of, this kind of illness perception process really drives illness behaviours in terms of people becoming disabled and so developing passive coping strategies and avoiding activity and work and social activity, etc. So what we try to do with, it, with the individual is to reconceptualise their problem in terms of helping them make sense of their pain um, from an evidence-based perspective that, you know, pain isn't very rarely as proportionate to the degree of injury and that a lot of the factors that drive pain and disability are modifiable and controllable and that behaviours, engaging in behaviours that build self-efficacy and confidence to engage with activity and work, etc., are actually very safe. And together with that, that can reduce the fear and distress of pain. That kind of breaks the cycle. So helping people kind of piece that together is the making sense bit, which seems to be very important for people with pain because they want a diagnosis, but more than that, they want to have some understanding of what's going on. So that's the sense-making part, and part of that process also is about what we call the exposure with control. And there's been a lot of work around um, a traditional exposure where you just take people back to activities or movements that are fear-inducing. But that can work for some but not for others. And the control part that we think is really helpful, we will provide people with strategies. You know, a great example of this would be someone who might have a fear of bending and lifting. So when they go to bend and lift, they, they co-contract hold their back, break, hold their breath, prop off their hand. So we'll give them relaxation strategies as a first step. We'll graduate them back into lumbar flexion in a, in a less loaded position, a less threatening position, and then gradually then take them back to the threatening task in a way where they feel like they have control over their pain. And often what we'll see during that process is they may anticipate or they may feel pain so 8 out of 10 pain, they may anticipate that it's going to be severe, but through that process, often you'll see a big discrepancy between what they expect and what they, um, what they feel. Uh, and so that's a very powerful um, behavioural, we, we call them behavioural experiments, of actually demonstrating to people that actually it's very safe to move if they do it in a way that they don't engage what we would call safety behaviours or protective behaviours. And so that that behavioural experiment or experience for the individual really affects cognitive processes around, you know, pain equals damage when they've done the thing they thought was going to do them damage but actually it wasn't painful. And then we rapidly generalise that into activities of daily living uh, that might be engaging with, you know, gardening, lifting their kids, bending over, you know, washing, cleaning, dressing, etc., so that they can learn and generalise that learning to 
to reduce the disability influence of disability in their life. So the third part often integrates with this, and it really addresses things like uh, poor sleep habits, uh, which we know are you know key sensitizing factors in terms of pain, um, as as well as engaging in healthy lifestyle. Um, behaviours like regular pa- uh, patterns of physical activity. And so we would engage people with their activity of preference. We know that the best activity is the one that someone enjoys. So we will try and engage the person to set up healthy habits around regular physical activity and where, where possible and, and link that in with social engagement as well. That leads me to my next question. A lot of what you've just described in those three components involves buildings a sense of self-efficacy yeah. uh, in individuals yeah. to break that cycle of pain-related yeah. uh, behavior. So uh, as yeah. a therapist, how do you go about building self-efficacy in a patient? So uh, it's interesting you say that because what's emerging in our research is that building self-efficacy seems to be one of the key mediating factors. Well, a, a few things. Pain control, uh, the perception that the person has control over their pain, engaging with feared activity. So we will deliberately target the things that they avoid fear or they perceive is going to hurt them. And by doing that, we often see a significant reduction in fear, but also an increase in confidence. So as people feel like they can um, engage with things that previously they've avoided or, or feared or have experienced pain, their fear reduces with that. They actually self-efficacy increases. So it's kind of like this kind of integrated process where as they increase their control, they feel like they can start engaging with things and achieving their goals and getting back to work and, you know, playing with their kids and doing the stuff that's important in their life. And with that, they're in control of their problem and their self-efficacy goes up. One of the key things we're seeing is that controllability looks like it's really important for people to build their self-confidence. And a huge emphasis in this approach is around self-management. So it's it's not about the therapist. Our role is purely the coach, um, and the patient is in the driver's seat. So, you know, there are the people who are taking control and setting the agenda and setting their goals. And I think that's very empowering for the person in pain, which shifts us away from this idea of treating signs and symptoms and providing palliative care, where the patient really has no control over their own experience. Well, and as you mentioned, it really is a shift away from more traditional styles of practice. It is, yeah. And and that's quite threatening um, for a lot of clinicians who are um, yeah. traditionally, in, you know, embedded yeah. in that in that process. A lot of it is a lack, a lack of confidence. That they, what we hear is that clinicians are saying, look, we feel like the patients want that. But actually, if you ask people and pay what they want, they want to understand what's going on. They want to have control and they want to get back to doing something that's important. And dishing out more palliative care doesn't do that at all, at least in traps. So I think there's a real confidence gap for our profession to yeah. shift our practice in a way that liberates us as well as our patients. Well, you know, that struck a note in my reading and thinking about the perspective. It is challenging, and you noted in your paper a Norwegian trial where they uh, involved, uh, on average, 100 hours of training of yeah. the therapist, at least as I understood what yeah. you had talked about. Yeah, that's right. That's rather daunting. Can you talk about the level of training you believe is required for a therapist to become co- uh, competent in this uh, CFT yeah. approach? Yeah, and I think one of the things that 
we often hear that people go, wow, that's a lot. But actually, you know, if you think about um, how big this burden is and how much it's costing society and how long it takes to train a PT, it's not that much. You know, if you put it in that context, it's not that much. What we understand, though, is that you can't just go to a weekend workshop and do it because it demands a paradigm shift across so many different levels. One is it's a different way of communicating with the patient. It's a reflective approach of communication where you're exploring beliefs, behaviours and emotional responses to pain. It's a very different than that didactic signs and symptoms approach. So that reflective process of training people to communicate in a different way is kind of one aspect of, of learning. The other thing is, you know, just understanding all the, the different dimensions that are important to explore. And the other part is, within the physical examination, we're not doing a lot of the traditional tests that are what we know aren't very reliable and certainly are not very predictive. You know, we're really attending to the things that the person uh, is fearful of. You know, the behavioural, the activities, the movements, the postures and, uh, that the person is nominating. So that's where we spend our time. Now, all of those features are quite daunting for an individual who's trained in a very different way. So part of this training is, one, understanding, two, watching. So watching others do the approach. And the third and most important part is the doing. So um, within all the trials now, we've, we've now, our group conducted four trials. The key component is the doing, where we will watch the therapist with, you know, disabled patients and coach them while they do the, the therapy. Um, and that part is the most important part because you can have the thoughts, but actually the doing part is the key. So we're exploring integrated, you know, ebook style learning with video clips, et cetera, but nothing replaces the doing part, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you, you introduced the subject of, of your trials. Could you talk a little bit about yeah. the existing uh, evidence that shows yeah. CFT, yeah, sure. um, its, its efficacy in comparison yeah. to other approaches to therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the first trial was conducted in Norway. Charlton Thurston did his PhD um, with that study, and that was a, a study that looked at people with chronic and disabling low back pain, and it compared them to what would be a you know very traditional manual therapy exercise-based approach with highly skilled practitioners. And all of, to, to be clear, all of the, across both arms of the trial, you know, patients were educated around the importance of engaging in physical activity and, you know, um, reducing fear avoidance beliefs and those kinds of factors. So it's not like they were getting um, crazy stuff. They were getting what would be considered best practice manual therapy exercise-based care. There was a 12-month, so the intervention takes three months, I should note. There were an equal amount of treatment in both arms. It was around seven to eight sessions across three months. And there was a 12-month follow-up, and we're just about to submit the three-year follow-up of that trial. What was interesting in the trial is that there were improvements in the manual therapy exercise groups. But typical with what we see in other research, the, the effects are quite small to moderate there were significantly larger effects in terms of both pain reduction and disability reduction. But we also saw impact on reduction in fear and also an improvement in mood, which was specific to the CFP group. And the other part that was interesting, we found reduction in episodes of pain, less need for ongoing treatment and less likely to take time off work. So the therapy 
doesn't just impact on pain and disability. It, it influences things like behaviours around avoiding work. Also, uh, that self-efficacy aspect reflects in this reduction in fear and also the improvement in mood, which we think is probably related to people getting back to doing the stuff that they love and they value. So that was the, within the Norwegian trial, and the three-year follow-up, which hasn't been yet been published, has shown that the effects in terms of reductions in disability has reached right out to three years, which again is quite unusual for you know well, non well for most interventions with back pain, I should say. Yeah. And and we think that's because we've done some qualitative work around that to ask patients what what are they thinking, and the, the story we're hearing is they've reconceptualised their pain. They feel like they have independence. They they feel like they you know they back doing the stuff they love. Essentially, are the three themes that come out of the qualitative work. So that was the, the Norwegian trial. There's another trial that's being conducted, and that will be um, uh, it's the preliminary analysis is being uh, carried out, and it will be submitted for publication later this year. Mary O'Keefe is a, um, a researcher now at Sydney University, but she conducted the study with Karen O'Sullivan and other colleagues. Both of them are authors on this paper. And she compared um, group-based education and, and functional activation versus individualised CFT. Uh, and that's a really nice trial because it, it kind of takes the key elements around pain education, healthy lifestyle and functional activation, but within a group to see whether individualising it to the, to the person has a bigger effect than group-based because clearly group-based is cheaper and she did a systematic review essentially showing no difference between individual care versus group-based care. And so the results of her trial, again, these are preliminary um, results, so I don't want to steal Mary's thunder, but the suggestion is that there is a greater effect in the individualising of care. And it looks like increases in self-efficacy look like they're underpinning that. So but you're, you know, in, you're encouraged by the evidence that's emerging, but it's still fairly yeah. early. Yeah, there's another study that, again, we're just about to submit that was in the secondary care setting of people who failed primary care, and that was a case uh, control trial. And, again, we're showing large effects for reductions in pain and disability and a bunch of these psycho social, well, psychological factors we know are important with pain. So there is growing evidence. We have just received large funding to conduct a multi-centre trial here in Australia as well. And so we have a number of other studies that are emerging where we're testing this against other interventions and in different care settings and in different geographical settings because we've realised that, you know, different care settings in different countries come with different obstacles. That's very encouraging. You know, in your perspective, you you talked about uh, clinicians' Uh, sense of um, competence and their concerns over their confidence yeah. to deal with some of these factors. Yeah. How have your, yeah. you and your colleagues addressed these in your work? There was a nice review that uh, PTs, how they felt about asking patients and managing people with high levels of psych- psychological distress. And essentially, PTs tend to say, look, we're not skilled to do it. It's outside our scope of practice. You know, that's not our domain. Yeah. So there's a, la- there's a great lack of confidence, I think, to deal with that area. And I think part of that um, stems from this view that psychosocial factors are equal mental health problems. And we know that a lot of people with pain are fearful. They don't understand what's going on. They're distressed. They don't have mental health problems. <laughs> yeah. So they kind of sit, they fall between the cracks. And 
And unfortunately, because we haven't developed competencies around exploring and managing people who are distressed and fearful within PT practice, there's a great group of people who, are, who we're just not who are not being well cared for. So they're not appropriate for psychological treatments, but, but their distress and fear is not being well managed, and, and their, you know their mood, the issues around their mood, around not being able to engage with valued activities, is completely not understandable in the context of the problem. So one of the things that we really push is to kind of destigmatize psychosocial factors to say, look, yeah. if you're involved with pain, you're involved with people who may be distressed and are fearful and who don't understand what's going on. That's a normal human experience. Yeah. And yeah. to address that, we've got all these tools in the toolbox. Good education, building confidence, getting people engaging in activity, helping to sleep. We know reduces depression. We know it builds, you know, helps with sleep. And, you know, these things influence, we see in our studies, reductions in fear with these people. So these are things well within our grasp, but it does require some extra training. <laughs> and I think, are, you know, I think it's up to us to, to embed this in undergraduate and postgraduate programs. Yeah, well, that leads me to my next question. Are you seeing changes in the preparation of therapists in Australia in these areas? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So our group just recently um, put out an e-book, which is like a, um, it's really a, a multi-dimensional clinical framework to just help people understand these are the factors that actually link to all aspects of health. So you could consider any health disorder and, you know, biopsychosocial factors are important for health. And we see this as a framework that if we don't engage with this, other professions are going to do it in our absence, basically. So we think this has to come right at the beginning of training so that we create a framework that then people can build upon in their post-training years. That leads me to my last question. Why do you call it cognitive functional therapy? (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. And look, we really battled around this. One of the things that we wanted... We didn't want this to be seen as like another exercise program because it's not. It's about changing human behavior, but it's also about changing the way people think. And it's not CBT because CBT is much more the doing, uh, the, the talking. This is very much about the doing. So the cognitions we think are critical, you know, the, the beliefs that people hold around their pain and their body and their back and their ability to work and move and be active are critical. We see that as a, a key component. But the functional part is the other part, which is the doing, and that, that engages the person with, you know, their functional behaviours, you know, the way they hold themselves, the, the way they protect their body, the things that they avoid. And so for us, the linking of the cognitions and the function with behaviour change was kind of like the language we felt best reflected what this intervention looked like. And it's interesting, having worked quite closely with um a uh, pain psychologist uh, such as Stephen Linton, who you're probably familiar with, yeah. um, when he's observed this approach, he sees it as quite distinct from other um, psychological approaches for pain, which, of course, he's been heavily involved in. And so we think the name quite um, helpfully reflects the, the, the intervention itself. Well, I, w- I want to thank you, first of all, for publishing the perspective in PTJ. I really enjoyed reading it. And I encourage our listeners to to go search it out and and to read through it. It's very nicely done. And and I want to thank you for taking the time today to discuss it with me. I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, look, I'd, I'd like to thank PPJ for the opportunity to put our work in your journal. You know, you're a great journal and I think you're doing a fabulous job disseminating knowledge and promoting, I think, what's a really exciting time for our profession to create a bit of a paradigm shift is to and fill a gap, really critical gap in our health environment around managing really tough uh, problems like back pain. Well, I look forward to seeing some uh, future work from you and your colleagues. Thanks so much.